that was unleavened because they were not to have the time to go through the normal process. But it had another significance. That is that the unleavened bread was to be a picture of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, of His uh, physical body, of his, of his humanity, that He was without sin. This is what we will be teaching after we have the communion, the doctrine of the impeccability of Christ. The root word there is from the Latin peccare, meaning to sin, and impeccability means without sin. Jesus Christ in His humanity, due to the virgin birth, was born without a sin nature. He did not receive the imputation of Adam's original sin, and He committed no personal sin, so that He is sinless. This qualified Him to go to the cross, but there are other uh, implications to impeccability. The bread represents his sinlessness. There's no leaven there. Leaven in the scripture was used as a symbol for sin. So unleavened bread is used. Every now and then you'll hear about some group or run into some group who passes around a loaf of bread and they'll, each person will take off a piece. And you, I will often hear uh, Christians say, what a great experience that was. You just seemed like everybody was, was much more unified. Yes, but you missed the whole uh, symbolism, the significance of unleavened bread. So it was, you felt good about heresy. The second element is the cup. Originally wine, now mostly grape juice in most churches. It is a symbol of the shedding of blood. That is a sign of a covenant. In the ancient world, whenever uh, men would enter into a contract, there would be a sacrifice to, uh, as a ceremony to show how solemn and significant this act of entering into a contract was. Imagine what it would be like every time you uh, signed up for a credit card that you had to uh, have a sacrifice. Uh, there would be a sacrifice if you got married. There would be a sacrifice if you bought a house. If you sign a lease agreement on an apartment, you would have to sacrifice. You think about that. that was, there would be a, lot, a, a tremendous amount of the shedding of blood. And that's what it was like in the ancient world. There was a lot of the shedding of blood, and especially under the Mosaic Law. And this was to impress upon people the consequences of sin, uh, Adam was warned that if he ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then that day he would surely or certainly die. That death was not physical but spiritual, but physical death was a consequence, one of many consequences to spiritual death. And so the sacrifice of an animal originally stood for as a reminder to the consequence of sin and that all of sin, all of life thus is impacted by Sin, and as a result of of God solemnifying His relationship with man by means of a sacrifice and that contract, the uh, reestablishment of the uh, original creation covenant or contract with Noah, I mean with Adam at the fall, known as the Adamic uh, uh, covenant, that this is what. Man then emulated afterwards. I mean, if this is what God did to uh, solemnify the contract with Adam, then whenever we enter into a contract with other men, we should do the same thing. So the cup represents blood, which stands for uh, the activation of a contract. 
And that contract was solemnified by a sacrifice. The sacrifice was Jesus Christ on the cross. Not just his physical death, but what happened during those hours between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when the, the sky got became supernaturally dark, something you didn't see if you saw the movie The Passion. It just sort of had a few thunderclouds pop up. But no, there was a heavy, deep darkness on Golgotha that day, that day because that was during the time when God the Father poured out the sins of mankind on Jesus Christ and he paid the penalty spiritually through a judicial separation from God the Father. Once that was paid, he then died physically. This is signified by him saying, it is finished. He said it was finished before he died physically. But he died physically to signify that it was finished. The payment had been uh, accepted, paid in full, and he died physically to go into the grave. So the cup represents the work that Christ did. So uh, this second hour for the last three or four months or so since about, the, since about Thanksgiving, we studied the person of Jesus Christ. There are two things that are important in understanding Jesus Christ. One is his person. The second is his work. This is boiled down in a very elementary way in the Lord's table to remind us of everything that we have. This is the person in the bread and the work in the cup of Jesus Christ. So every believer is commanded to observe this on a regular basis, not to take it uh, frivolously, not to be involved in um, uh, partaking of the Lord's table in a thoughtless manner. And so we are commanded to examine ourselves, to make sure that we are in fellowship and that we are indeed prepared for this serious aspect of worship. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, to confess your sins in the privacy of your own soul in silent prayer, just identifying to God your sin. Uh, We know that our sins were paid for at the cross. By identifying them to God, we receive forgiveness and cleansing, and that prepares us for worship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then... I will ask Dave Tongren to return thanks for the bread. During the prayer, the deacons will come forward for the Lord's table.
is our custom for everyone to retain the bread until all have been served. night before he went to the cross, the Lord celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. When he came to the bread, he broke it and he passed it out. And he said, this is my body which is given as a substitute for you. Take and eat. It is our custom to retain the cup until all have been served.
Our Lord then took the cup. It was the third cup in the Passover meal called the cup of redemption. He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood which is given for you. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. Let's stand together and sing hymn number 258, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, we need to uh, open in a word of prayer to ask the Lord's guidance and direction. Now, one thing I would like to, for you all to pray for to add to your prayer list is a very good friend of mine by the name of Gordon Whitelock down in Texas uh, has just um, uh, been diagnosed with some uh, some problems. It may be indicative of uh, could be could be something uh, serious with a kidney, had, uh, and I'd like for your prayer for him. Gordon's 90 years old. Gordon led my mother to the Lord. Gordon, I wouldn't be in ministry probably if it weren't for the fact that in my teenage years and college years, he always gave me an opportunity to get involved in some kind of ministry and teach. He has probably personally been used by the Lord to lead over 2,000 men and women into full-time, some kind of full-time professional Christian work. And at the age of 90, he is still going stronger than anyone here just about. And uh, so this is, um, he means a lot to a tremendous number of people. And I appreciate your, your prayers for him. We'll be adding him to the, him and his wife, Alice, who's 88 and still going strong herself. So we'll pray for them. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time to gather together to study your word, to be challenged by all that you have provided for us in salvation, and especially to understand our wonderful Savior who He is and His humanity and deity. Father, we thank You that You are God to whom we can come on a regular basis, a God who hears us and who answers our prayers and ever stands ready uh, to be our assistant and helper in time of need. Father, we especially remember uh, Gordon at this time and Alice and all those uh, folks at Camp Penile and this this time of testing. And if it's a time, we just pray that You would... uh, uh, give him special grace, provide for them, strengthen them, give the doctors skill and wisdom, and we pray that you would uh, just watch over the family. We know this will be a time, a uh, tremendous time uh, to see answered prayer and also to see you glorified. Now, Father, we pray for us as we study your word today that we might be challenged in our understanding of our Savior. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, yesterday I got back from former Soviet Union, which was a great trip, had a lot of uh, opportunities to teach in different scenarios than I've had in the past, different groups of people, in two completely different settings. And I will give a, an extended report with pictures on uh, Wednesday night. Last time I tried to show pictures from a trip on Sunday morning, and everything got washed out, so I'll do that on Wednesday night. Uh, your prayers were answered. My guardian angels are taking a well-deserved rest. Uh, not only did I have the thrill almost every day of riding around with a, a Russian driver in traffic. Moscow has traffic like you wouldn't believe. New York, Los Angeles, Houston, they don't hold a candle to the kind of traffic that you have in Moscow. Ten years ago, I was in the same area of Moscow, and the difference was just phenomenal. But despite the fact that I had to face Moscow traffic with Moscow drivers, the greatest challenge was flying on Aeroflot. I handed it to Jim Myers, 
to fly on Aeroflot. I don't, there, there wasn't a thing I saw that would pass muster on the, for the FAA. Especially the fact that as I was walking in, I saw two things yesterday as I left Moscow that, that, that will always stick in my memory. One, I, I had my camera in my hand. I just couldn't move fast enough to get it. I was, we were driving along the freeway going out of town, and, and there was ongoing traffic, and I was looking at all the different uh, buildings, and I got distracted because they put in this shopping center, or sort of a chain, it's like, I would say it's like Walmart, but that's about, a Walmart's about ten times bigger than one of these stores, called a Ram store, but behind the Ram store was an IMAX. I was floored. Well, as my eyes came back to watch the traffic to make sure I wasn't about to die, I noticed a semi coming toward me on the other side of the freeway, and it was just fast enough to where I got an impression that it was probably a Mercedes or some other European manufactured, you know, European manufactured semi. Now, if you notice, semis have a windscreen that goes above the cab and goes up to blow the shoot the wind over the uh, over the. Um, uh, trailer so that give it a little efficiency. And so on this, this windscreen over the cab of this European-made truck in, in, in the heart of Moscow was a Confederate battle flag. <laughs> you'll never know what you'll run into over there. And then I got to the airport, and I went through security, and you're going through, went through security, and, and you have to go through security before you can even go to the, the ticket counter to... Uh, sign up for your flight and let them know you're there, check your baggage and all of that. And there was this guy, young guy, early 30s, tanned, wearing a T-shirt, sandals, and a pair of khaki shorts. And uh, I found out later that he and his buddies had just returned from a little vacation down to Vietnam. And they're still vacationing. And he's bargaining with the security lady, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me go out. And so he goes out. I didn't know what was going on. All this is taking place in Russian, so I don't know what's going on. I went to the counter, checked my bag, and as I turn around, I see him coming back in with, with he's got three open bottles of beer in each hand. So there's no such thing as an open container law in the former Soviet Union. And I, who cares if it's... Uh, when did I leave? Oh, this was about 3 in the afternoon. But you'd see the same thing at 6 o'clock in the morning. Trust me. And he's got these six bottles of beer, and he goes back to his buddies. There's about four or five of them. I don't know why he went to get more beer, because these guys have two or three six canned six-packs sitting there on the ground when they're all sitting around in a circle, and they're all lit. And uh, they're cracking jokes and singing and everybody's kind of watching. Of course, all this is going on in Russian. And they have the, I don't know what was going on, but they had the, the ticket agents. And they were doing all they could not to just, you know, bend over laughing at all of this humor that's, that's going on. And then these guys, of course, are on the same plane I'm on, <laughs> sitting right behind me. <laughs> and they just, you know, ran up the stairs. Over there, I have yet to uh, get on an airplane where you didn't have to be taken out to the somewhere out on the runway where the airplane is and you go up the stairs the old-fashioned way. And so they're just going up the stairs with their beer in their hand, just drinking away. Get on the airplane and, and uh, away we went. Party flight. Uh, it's, it's a different world over there. Uh, trust, trust me. And I saw an element of the different world. Well, I'll save that for Wednesday night. I'll say that from Wednesday night. We need to get into our text this morning. Our last 
lesson on who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We are coming to the last topic, which is the impeccability of Christ. The impeccability of Christ. We began with, back looking at the Old Testament. I want to summarize what we've done in this entire series. We began by looking at the fact that in the Old Testament there are two streams of prophecies or promises about the Messiah. The first focuses on the fact that the Messiah will be divine. Isaiah 9, 6, he's called Mighty God. Uh, then there is the stream that he is a human Messiah. He will be uh, born from a virgin, that he is truly human. And these two streams come together at the virgin birth of Christ. This is why the virgin birth is so important is because it is how the kenosis takes place. We studied the kenosis the last two weeks. This is how undiminished deity adjusts itself and adds to itself true, uh, true humanity. This is called the hypostatic union, which describes the union of two natures. So in Jesus Christ, you have two natures. Undiminished deity and true humanity, divine and human, and they're united in one person. Now, it is so important to understand this. We've, gone, we've had our basic building blocks as we went through Old Testament prophecy, New Testament prophecy, uh, the, the consistency of the witness of both Old and New Testament to the, both the deity and the humanity of the Messiah. And then as we got past the New Testament in the last few weeks as we've looked at the passage of Philippians 2, 5 to 11, which is one of the central passages on the deity and humanity of Christ, we looked at the development of our understanding of the hypostatic union. Now, we're going to conclude our study with uh, just some basic observations about the person of Christ. All of this is important. This isn't just some some sort of abstract theological exercise, trying to figure out these things. They're the ultimate significance of all of this is not just for our salvation, but also for what it establishes as a pattern for your spiritual life. It goes back to Jesus Christ in his humanity and how he lived that life. If he lived his life in the power of his deity, then he is not an example to us because we can't do that. This is the bottom line. He does it in the power of the Holy Spirit in order to provide for us a model for living the Christian life in the power of God the Holy Spirit. And so we look at the hypostatic union, basic definition, that it describes the union of two natures, divine and human, in the one person of Jesus Christ. These natures are inseparably united without loss or mixture of separate identity, without loss or transfer of properties or attributes, the union being personal and eternal. In a nutshell, Jesus is undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. Now, the terminology from this definition comes from the great, what, is, what are sometimes called the great ecumenical creeds, and that's one of the few times you use that word in a proper way. Because in the early church, there was one church. You didn't have Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox or Presbyterian. You just had the solid, unified, or ecumenical church for the first six or seven hundred years. 
and there were several notable uh, councils of church leaders that were held and during which time they worked to hammer out doctrinal statements to clearly articulate and reflect what was already taught in the Scriptures. And we looked at this in the study of Christ, and we saw that there were two basic questions that are important to be able to answer clearly in our thinking, as they did in the early church. And the first question is, who was Jesus before he came? Now, there was an understanding, as I have pointed out, that Jesus was fully God. But if you believe in monotheism, that there's only one God, then is that one God Jesus? Or are we talking about two gods? Well, if we're talking about two gods, we have uh, ditheism or tritheism. Who was Jesus before he came? The importance of this is to identify him as the creator. Because if Jesus isn't fully God, we can't have, we, we don't know who Jesus, we don't know who God is. Because Jesus is claimed to be the fullest and greatest expression of who God is. He is the revelation of God. So if you, if you know Jesus, but Jesus isn't God, then you don't know God. And I don't know God. Furthermore, if he isn't fully God, he couldn't die on the cross. His sacrifice would not have an, an infinite value. So this is the importance of the question. We saw there were several answers. The first was called modalism. And in modalism, the Son is not distinct from, the, from God the Father. God is simply an entity who is, expresses himself at times as the Father and then at other times as the Son and at other times as the Holy Spirit. There's not an understanding of three distinct persons. You just have one essence and one person with three different modes of expression, hence the name modalism or sometimes called modalistic monarchianism. The next attempt was, after, after debate on that, saying, well, that doesn't accurately reflect Scripture. Because if, if modalism, you have a problem if Jesus prays to the Father. Is he praying to himself? No. He has to be praying to another person. So there was an, another attempt called uh, adoptionism, sometimes called dynamic monarchianism. And in this view, God exists from all eternity, and Jesus is just a good man, but he's truly human. And at his baptism, God imparts or infuses deity in him. But is he God? No, he's not eternal. He is some sort of secondary creature. So once again, now you have a problem. You don't know God. You just have a creature. Well, that was recognized to be a false attempt. And what you see here is that as you go through history, people often make stabs at trying to explain what the Scripture teaches, and the first two or three stabs are wrong. But it helps them clarify by negation what the truth is. And often you've experienced that. You'll hear somebody talk to you and say, well, they're wrong. Why are they wrong? I don't know, but they're wrong. See, we do that all the time. We, we hear something. We know it's not right. We can't really articulate the right way to say it, but we know the wrong way. And that's what was going on the first three or four centuries of the church, is they would hear somebody say, this is the solution, and uh, that's not quite right. I can't put, say it right, but that, and then the next guy will take a stab at it, and he's wrong. He gets shot down as a heretic. Well, the third guy to come along, or the third attempt, was by a guy named Arius. This lives today as Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, it doesn't have a direct lineage to Arius, but it's the same idea that got picked up again in the 19th century. 
but with Arius, he, he avoided the adoptionistic thing of, of Christ being adopted at his baptism. And he said, well, Christ was created by God before any other creatures. So it's an eternity past sometime. But that still means that Jesus is just a creature. Once again, you don't know the Creator. You just know another creature. So Arianism was rejected at the Council of Nicaea in uh, 425 B.C. and uh, Excuse me, 325 B.C. I 80. She said jet lag again. Um, at least I can use that for an excuse this morning. What's the excuse the other time? Okay. Arianism is rejected at 325 at the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea was called by the Emperor Constantine because he's got a problem. He's trying to unify the empire, and yet these Christians are squabbling with each other because Arius has a little praise and worship chorus that he's singing all over the empire called There Was a Time When Christ Was Not. And like most Christians in most eras, most of those Christians at that time got their theology from the hymns they sang and not from the doctrinal teaching from the pulpit. It's true today. Very few pastors know how to teach, but they all love singing great little songs that have lousy, lousy theology. If you notice, we did not sing He, he Lives on Resurrection Sunday. The reason I do not allow the singing of that hymn, which every other church in this country sang, is because in the chorus it says, He lives, He lives. You ask me how I know He lives, He lives within my heart. Is that why you know Jesus lives? If your answer is yes, then you're a liberal. See, the reason you know Jesus lives is because the Bible says so. Not because you've had some sort of mystical, subjective experience. Okay? So we're not going to sing uh, hymns that reflect garbage. But in the early church, everybody was singing the popular praise and worship songs of Arius. And so this was creating quite a division. So the bishops met, that is the church leaders from all over the empire, and they settled on a doctrinal statement called the Council of Nicaea, which clearly articulated that Jesus Christ was of the same identical essence as the Father, and he was eternal just like the Father. So this was not something new. You can go back to church fathers as early as Clement of Rome, who basically overlaps the apostles. He lives at the latter part of the first century, and they clearly believed in the deity of Christ. So uh, claims like in the Da Vinci Code and many liberals notwithstanding, the early church clearly believed in the undiminished deity of Jesus Christ. Well, after the Council of Nicaea, they had to answer the question, who was Jesus when he came? I mean, if he was eternally God, what do we have here after the Incarnation? The Gnostics were saying it was just an appearance of God. He, he wasn't really there in the flesh. So there were various attempts to explain Jesus. And how, do you, how does God become man? How, how do you explain this? So there were, another, again, different uh, attempts, stabs at the truth. The first was by Apollinarius. And he said that, Jesus, that, that a normal human being was composed of three parts, a, a soul, a body, and a human spirit. Jesus had a human body, had a divine soul, and a human spirit. Well, is he truly human? No, because he doesn't have a human soul. Is he truly divine? No, because he uh, has this blendedness there. 
So it's, it's, he's not really a, a distinct human being. So this diminishes the truth. He has, he has deity, but he has a diminished humanity. Well, Nestorius was the next one to come along. And instead of emphasizing the unity, he had Christ so bifurcated that there's no uh, one person. You have a, he's, he's two essences, but he's two persons. This is like a multiple personality Messiah. Now, Nestorianism became very popular. In fact, it was the view of many missionaries who took Christianity to India and to Central Asia and as far as China in the uh, 4th and 5th centuries. So this view wasn't, wasn't accepted. The next guy that came along was Eutyches. And just as uh, Nestorius had so divided Christ with no real unity, uh, Eutyches comes along and he unites Christ so much that he's a third something. He's no longer two distinct essences or natures, but they're blended. So you now have someone who's not really God, and he's not really man anymore. He's a third something. So finally, at the Council of Chalcedon in uh, 451, they got it right. They clearly stated the doctrine of the person of Christ, that we apprehend this one and only Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, in two natures. See? Two natures. Without confusing the two natures, that was uh, Eutyches who blended them. Without transmuting one nature into the other, that's also Eutyches, or mixing one nature into the other. Without dividing them into two separate categories, that was Nestorius. Without contrasting them according to area or function, also Nestorius. This distinctiveness of each nature is not nullified by the union. He's still undiminished deity and true humanity. Instead, the properties of each nature are conserved, and both natures concur in one person and into one essence. They are not divided or cut into two persons, Nestorianism, but are together the one and only and only begotten Lagos of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus have the prophets of Old Testament testified that connected it to the Old Testament, and thus the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us. So this was their understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Now, why does all that make a difference? This is what we studied last time when we looked at the doctrine of the kenosis, and that is from the Greek verb kenao, found in Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse, uh, in verses 7 and 8, explains kenosis as an emptying. That when the eternal God became a man, he emptied himself. But how did he empty himself? And the text says that he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and by becoming obedient to the point of death. And I pointed out last time that when we look at Philippians chapter 2, we have to be careful about the way the English Bible, and in some cases Greek texts, have divided the, uh, the passage. Actually, in Philippians 2, verse 8, that first phrase, and being found in appearance of a man, is part of verse 7. So verse 7 begins in the New King James, He made himself of no reputation, literally, he emptied himself. 
And then you have three instrumental uh, participles. By taking on the form of a bondservant, emphasizes the fact that he looked like every human being, but yet he didn't have a sin nature. Second, he became uh, he he um, he came in the likeness of men. This emphasizes that he was truly human in the physical form of mankind, of, of humanity. And then third, and being found in appearance as a human being, so that all of that shows that the way he emptied himself was by taking on uh, the nature of humanity, yet without sin. This is what we studied the last uh, two, two Sunday uh, mornings. Now we come to the what is for many people one of the most difficult subjects, and that's the impeccability of Christ. This is laid down uh, most clearly in Ephesians 4, 14 and 15. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, passing through the heavens is the doctrine of the ascension of Christ, that He physically, spatially passed through the heavens, plural, meaning the upper atmosphere of the earth and the heavens of the solar system in the universe, to a physical location out there beyond the universe, which indicates that the universe is finite. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession and then we have an explanation in verse 15.4. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. And I pointed out that one of the that in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus said that the Father had committed to him all judgment. The one who judges us and is our high priest is one who's truly human. He has gone through everything that we have gone through so that he can sympathize with our limitations, our weaknesses. But... He is one who has been tempted, and that means testing, in all things as we are, yet without sin. The word for tempting is the Greek word pyrazo, P-E-I-R-A-Z-O, pyrazo. And it doesn't mean merely to be subjectively attracted to something. That's what you and I normally think of as sin, to be subjectively attracted to something. Uh, by the time you see whatever it is you want, you're drawn to it. There's that, that lust. So we have a hard time thinking of temptation in a merely objective sense. But what we're talking about here is, is the kind of temptation that Adam experienced when uh, the serpent, or, or actually when, when Eve offers him the fruit, and the woman experienced when the serpent tells her that, look at the fruit, it's, it's good to look at. There was no inner attraction from a sin nature. You and I have a magnet inside of us, as it were, that has an attraction to sin and evil, just as iron filings automatically are drawn to a magnet. But Jesus didn't have that. Nevertheless, he has the same kind of test, an overt test, that uh, Adam experienced in the garden. Uh, One way I try to uh, express this is, let's say, I don't know, most of you probably tried to go on a diet at one point or another, um, if you go on a diet and you eat correctly and you eat regularly, then if you have just eaten um, a correct meal and you're feeling that you're fairly uh, satiated, satisfied with your meal, somebody offers you a piece of chocolate cake and ice cream, then uh, you may not be as inwardly drawn to that 
as you would be if you had not had anything to eat for seven or eight hours. So seven or eight hours goes by, and you may have been, may have lost several pounds and doing very good on this diet, but you're really drawn to that because you're hungry. Well, if somebody offers you that cake and ice cream when you're full, that's just as much a temptation as if you're empty. See, it's in the overt action, by the way. Speaking of ice cream reminded me that, that um, in another uh, month, I think, he's shooting for Memorial Day, Don uh, Harris is opening up an ice cream store right down, right around the corner. So being, you know, good members of the body of Christ <laughs> and willing to support one another in all things, I think we should yield to temptation when that happens. And we're going to just, right after church that Sunday, we're just all going to go over there and uh, support him in his new endeavor. I just thought I would throw that in so you can prepare for that. Don't start a diet on that Friday. So Jesus is not inwardly attracted to sin because he didn't have a sin nature. But the text says he has been tested in all things. That is, in every category of temptation as we are, yet without sin. Now, that doesn't mean he's had every detailed temptation that you and I have. I haven't had every detailed temptation that you've had. You haven't had every detailed temptation. You know, there are details of temptation that that, uh, I've had that you haven't had. But what this is saying is that in every category, Jesus Christ was tested, yet without sin. This is the doctrine of impeccability, that Jesus Christ did not sin. Now, in his makeup, in his nature, Jesus Christ is fully man and he's fully God, undiminished deity and true humanity. As such, he is living his life as a human being. Now, the best way, I think, to understand the kenosis of Philippians 2 is that Jesus Christ is, in, the, in his person, is not accessing his deity in order to solve the problems of testing and temptation that he experiences in life. When, in Matthew chapter 4... Satan takes him to, he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and then Satan tests him in the wilderness. He is, does not rely upon uh, his deity to resist the temptation. What he does is to model for us the standard. He quotes Scripture. He applies the Word of God to the situation. This implies that he has learned Scripture. He has memorized Scripture. He doesn't say, wait, wait, I've got to go back and check the scroll at home. I know there's a verse about this somewhere. See, that's the standard for us, is that we need to have Scripture memorized and at our fingertips, so that our mental fingertips, so that in the midst of the test we can recall that Scripture under the filling of the Holy Spirit and apply it to our particular life situation. We saw last time in our study that there are times when Jesus, in his humanity, demonstrates that he has finite knowledge. He doesn't know when the second coming is going to take place in his humanity. His deity does, but his humanity is not accessing it. It's there, but he's not accessing it. At other times, we saw that he did access his, his deity when he sees Nathaniel under the fig tree and in John Uh, Chapter 1, verses uh, 45 to 48, he clearly articulates uh, where Nathaniel was. This is a sign of his his deity. 
He utilized his omnipotence on occasion, but mostly he didn't access it. He had finite power. He was dependent totally on the Holy Spirit and on uh, the Word of God. But at other times he demonstrated he was God by rebuking the seas, stilling the storm, changing the water uh, into wine. What the doctrine of impeccability shows us is that Jesus in his humanity is impeccable. He is sinless. Not because he is simply attached to his deity. Now this is really important to understand this because it's the significance of impeccability that's important. Normally when this is discussed, you'll hear people talk about the fact that, and I'll break this down in a minute, that in his, in his deity, he could not sin. Deity can't sin. In his humanity, he was not able to sin. And, and sometimes I've heard the illustration, it's like welding a copper wire to a steel beam. The copper wire on its own can be bent. But when it's welded to that steel beam, you can't bend it. But see, that's reliance upon the steel beam to give strength to the copper wire. And if you follow the implication of that out, what you'll discover is that, that if Jesus relied on his deity to remain sinless, we don't have a salvation and we don't have a spiritual life. We have to keep these separate and distinct and understand their significance. So the doctrine of impeccability is crucial for two reasons. First of all, it's crucial because in impeccability, Jesus Christ is qualified to go to the cross and pay for our sins because he is sinless. He is the Lamb of God that is without spot or blemish. But the second significance of impeccability has to do with demonstrating the spiritual life for the church age. See, we live in the church age. Our spiritual life is based on the twin dynamics of the filling of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Using them together, the Holy Spirit fills us with the Word of God. And as we apply the Word of God through various uh, stress busters or the spiritual skills, then God the Holy Spirit uses that while we are in fellowship, abiding with Christ, walking by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit uses that to produce spiritual growth in our lives. This is the same thing that happened in the life of Christ. As a baby, he has to grow and mature as a, as a human infant. He has to learn right and wrong. He doesn't learn wrong because he does wrong, gets his hand slapped, because he's sinless. This is where it gets difficult for us to understand. He is going to mature through the same processes that we go through, yet he is not going to, uh, he is not going to sin. It's hard, difficult for us to imagine that with an infant because most of the infants we're familiar with are dirty, rotten sinners just like we are. And you see that as a parent. You look at your little child and you see that they have the same sin nature that you have. That's a scary thought, isn't it? And you watch that and from very early on you see that they learn before they're six months old, they learn how to manipulate you. And they learn uh, when they're, and they know when they're not supposed to do something, and you can you can see that. And yet they do it. That willful rebelliousness of their sin nature begins to manifest itself. You see, when Jesus is a baby, that doesn't happen because he doesn't have a sin nature with that 
uh, propensity to sin. So that must have been quite a shock for Joseph and Mary when they started having the other babies. And as Jesus grows and matures, as he learns language, just as we do, and I pointed out uh, last time that based on uh, passages like Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 11, that it was God the Father who was teaching him the Word, he still had to learn the Word the same way you and I do. He still had to memorize Scripture. If he did it by, by some sort of uh, instant osmosis and putting his going to sleep at night and the Holy Spirit just sort of fed it in with a with a tape or something, then that would break down the model, wouldn't it? He had to learn the same way that you and I do. He had to go through that same process where starting with as he becomes self conscious, I think, uh, as he becomes self conscious, he became aware of who he was in his hypostatic union and what his mission was. But as he grows, he has to make decision point after point after point. But because he is in a position of walking by the Spirit and in fellowship filled with the Spirit initially, then this becomes easy, as it were, for him. This is the, the natural thing, the normal thing, is for him always to make the right decision consequent with his unfallen or righteous nature as a human being with, born without sin. But as he grew older and became aware of other options, then that volitional issue, either to continue to walk by the Spirit or to try to do it his own way independently of God, would come into play more and more as he had the vocabulary and the mental uh, uh, acumen in order, to, in order to make those decisions and see what the options were. So in this case, the doctrine of impeccability becomes crucial because it teaches us about uh, our own spiritual life. Now, impeccability is the doctrine of Christology, which recognizes that during the course of Christ's life, he never sinned in his, in his humanity. Though he was tempted and tested, he never sinned. And the Scriptures affirm this consistently. Verses like Luke one thirty five. At the announcement of his birth, the angel answered and said to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child, that is, he is born a holy child, set apart unto God. The holy child shall be called the Son of God. John 8:46. Jesus said, Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? By asking the question, he implies that he cannot be convicted of sin. Romans 8.3 For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Homoi omati, the same word used in the uh, kenosis passage to indicate our Christ's likeness with humanity, that He was just like us, but not quite the same because he didn't have a sin nature. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh. Second Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Uh, Hebrews 4.15 talks about the fact that he was tested in all points as we are yet without sin. Hebrews 7.26, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest 
holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. 1 Peter 1.19, but with precious blood is of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. And then 1 John 3.5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So it is clear that Jesus didn't have sin. Jesus lives a sinless life. But the picture that you have of the Scriptures is of something different than what you and I might portray as a sinless person. I mean, he wasn't like a little Lord Fauntleroy. To take into account a picture of who Jesus is, we have to remember that he doesn't behave according to the standards of what is called what we might think of as politically correct behavior. You have to be careful with some of these things. Jesus went around. He called his opponents uh, serpents and hypocrites, adulterers, children of hell, uh, children of the devil, and whitewashed sepulchers, whitewashed gravestones. This is obviously someone who didn't go to Dale Carnegie's course on how to win friends and influence people. In um, Matthew 5:22 he said do not call people fools yet in Matthew 23:17 and 19 he did he addressed his opponents as fools in Mark 11:13 through 14 he curses a defenseless fig tree just that's just for the tree huggers out there in uh, Matthew 15:26 he called the gentile woman a dog He's abrupt with his mother at the wedding in Cana and says, what, what does this have to do with me, mother? In Matthew 8.21, he ex, uh, expresses a harshness towards traditional family loyalties. And in John chapter 2.15, he goes into the temple and rounds up all the businessmen, physically throws them out of the temple and picks up all of their goods and all of their legally earned money and throws it after them and throws all of their merchandise and wares out of the temple. Now, this isn't the, our culturally accepted view of a nice man or a good person, but he's righteous. He's perfect. So we have to factor all these aspects into who Jesus Christ is. As humanity, he was called the son of Adam in his humanity because he was to be the second Adam and in order to uh, fulfill and to accomplish what Adam failed in the garden. In the garden of Eden, Adam is both temptable and peccable. He doesn't have a sin nature. He's temptable and he's able to sin. He is tempted in the sense that there's an overt test, which is the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he can sin, which he obviously does. But Jesus is temptable, but yet he doesn't sin. He, Adam didn't have a sin nature originally. Jesus didn't have a sin nature. And so he is going to live his life moment by moment, just as Adam did before the fall. But Jesus is never going to uh, sin. The way this doctrine is normally expressed is through two Latin phrases that have come down through history. The first phrase is applied actually to the deity of the Lord. He is, it's called non posse peccari, not able to sin. And this applies to his deity. He was not able to sin. Deity cannot sin. But in his humanity, he was non, I mean, he was posse non peccari, which means able 
not to sin. And his humanity is what's important here. It's the impeccability of his humanity, not the impeccability of his deity. And this is something that is frequently lost in trying to understand this particular issue. I think the reason people have problems with this is because it's set up wrong. The point is that Jesus is born without a sin nature. He is going to be born sinless so that he can duplicate the test that of both Satan in the original fall and Adam, specifically Adam, at, the, at, at his fall in order to demonstrate that true humanity can resist temptation and be sinless. By so doing, he is not only qualifying himself for the, for the cross, but also for the spiritual life. In essence, what happens and what makes this clear is that Jesus Christ is born what we would call in fellowship and filled with the Spirit. This takes us back to a verse we've studied again and again and again, and that is Galatians 5.16. In Galatians 5.16, Paul said, Walk by means of the Spirit, and it will be impossible to fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, you don't get that in the English. That comes out in the Greek because the construction there is a a double negative in the Greek plus a subjunctive mood verb for teleao. And that means that something is impossible to do. If a Greek wanted to assert something, that something was impossible, he would use that particular construction in grammar. Jesus Christ is born walking by the Spirit. And as we studied that passage again and again, people always say, well, how do you sin then? If you can't sin, if you're walking by the Spirit, what happens? How do you ever sin? Well, it's because walking by the Spirit is a volitional decision of dependency. And so as you are growing up, as you're growing up as a believer, you walk by the Spirit. And then you make a decision you're not going to depend on the Spirit. You may be fully aware of that. You may not be fully aware of that decision, but you do. You get your eyes off the Spirit. Just as Peter, when he's walking on the water... And he has his eyes on the Lord, suddenly got distracted and took his eyes off the Lord, and instantly he began to sink. As long as he was walking on the water, he couldn't sink. I mean, as long as he he had his eyes focused on Jesus, he couldn't sink. But as soon as he took his eyes off of Jesus, he sank. See, he didn't sink first and then take his eyes off of Jesus. The same is true for the believer. When you're walking by the Spirit and you have your eyes on the Word and your focus is on the Spirit, then you can't sin. But as soon as you take your eyes of dependency off of the Holy Spirit in your walk, then you will sink, then you will sin. Jesus Christ is born in His humanity. He's filled with the Spirit. He's walking by the Spirit. He never makes a choice to take His eyes off the Spirit. That's why He remains in His humanity to be impeccable. So in His deity, He's not able to sin. But in His humanity, He is able not to sin because He keeps His focus and his dependence on the Holy Spirit. Now, that must have been tough. I mean, when he's growing up, he's being tested in all areas as we are. Just think about two systems he faces. He, he faces this, the first arena of testing is people testing. Here you have the perfect Son of God. He is, in his humanity, he is absolute perfection. He has to deal with imperfect parents, much more than you do. I mean, he knows every time they're wrong. He knows every time they make a stupid, foolish decision. 
yet he has to subordinate himself to their authority. That was much tougher than any test any of you had dealing with any of your parents because you didn't have that sense of perfection. You probably had an arrogant sense of perfection, but not a real sense of perfection. Jesus did. And then as he dealt with whatever schools there were, as a young Jewish boy, there were, there were uh, uh, synagogue schools. He had to deal with other children who were sinners, and he had to deal with teachers who were sinners, and he had to deal with all kinds of people in authority who were motivated by arrogance, motivated by uh, self-serving rationales, er everything. He had to uh, be in obedience to all of those authority systems. So he had people testing, and then he had system testing with all of the uh, Pharisaical, Sadducees, all the religious systems of Israel. Nevertheless, rather than becoming angry, frustrated, like you and I do, he uh, remained relaxed and calm. He never became tired or weary or exasperated or impatient with the people or the systems that he had to deal with. He remained completely focused on the Holy Spirit and dependence upon the Holy Spirit. This allows him to remain sinless because he never takes his eyes off the Holy Holy Spirit. So that leads us in conclusion to this study to think about some particular uh, questions or aspects related to uh, the growth and development uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have seen that as he grew up, at some point he was aware of who he was. When he's 12 years old and they go to the temple, he stays behind. His parents leave, realize he's not with the caravan and come back and he said, well, don't you know I must be about my father's business? So he doesn't just somehow have some sort of a supra or super God consciousness. I think in his humanity, in his self-consciousness, as he grew up, just like any young, young child in his humanity grows up, he becomes aware of who he is. So sometime between infancy and the age of 12, he knew that he was the promised Messiah in his humanity. Uh, perhaps he accessed some of that information from his deity. That's possible. That wouldn't be using his deity to solve problems. But at some point, he becomes aware of who, who he is as the Messiah and his, his uh, destiny. It could have been accomplished through his study of the Word. We know that he knew the Word. We know from Isaiah 50 that God the Father taught him the Word. And perhaps that is how he, he learned who he was. But... We have to recognize that in his learning and his growing and his acquisition of knowledge, he had to do that in the same process that we do in order to uh, be a perfect example and model uh, for us. So even though his deity was partitioned off or he didn't access it on a regular basis, it's not partitioned off in some absolute sense. And he only accesses that deity on occasion, never to utilize it for his own personal uh, problem solving. He memorized the Old Testament and utilized the Old Testament in the same way that we use the Old Testament, or we use promises of God in the faith rest drill. He had to do the same thing, which means he had to go through the same process that you and I do to learn Scripture and to uh, internalize that. He probably learned it in the synagogue schools, in the home, as well as from, as Isaiah 50, 
verses 4 and following teach, as well as from the Father. So the mechanics of learning Scripture would have had to be the same for him as for us in order for the pattern to be established. And all along he is obedient to the Father. At each decision, he's making a conscious decision to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And that is the pattern for us because that prepares him not only to go to the cross, but it is how he solves all the problems he faces, the rejection, the hostility, all of the uh, other temptations that come along that we face in life are handled because he keeps the focus on the Holy Spirit and walking in dependence upon him. And that is our pattern. So this concludes our study of who is Jesus. Next Sunday we're going to come back and start a new series that I've been threatening for a while. We'll begin a study of Revelation with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by these things, to realize the high standard established by Jesus Christ in his walk uh, by means of God the Holy Spirit, his dependency on God the Holy Spirit that, that left in his humanity an impeccability that he was without sin. He was, not, he was able not to sin by dependence on the Holy Spirit and the application of doctrine. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsaved, uncertain of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, we pray that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal salvation. You simply Put your faith alone in Christ alone. You trust that he died on the cross for your sins. You rely upon his completed work on the cross. This is the uh, provision of our salvation. It is yours instantly. At the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, you're regenerate, you receive eternal life, and this can never be taken from you. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us as we think about our Lord, meditate upon who he, who he was and what he did, that it may challenge us in our own spiritual life and spiritual walk. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.